Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen, and please be seated. Good morning, Journey Church. First time guests that are joining us, those of you who are with us online, and welcome to our fifth and final Sunday in our study of an obscure but so relevant book in the Old Testament called the book of Esther. I I believe we've all had stories in our life, probably far too many of them, that go from so-so and overnight to bad, very bad, right? Or maybe from bad to worse, like a living nightmare, right? You can look back in your own story, but have you ever had a story that went in the opposite direction, Uh, Much fewer and farther between. But there you are in the midst of life. You're going about your business. You're not trying to cause trouble. You're just trying to survive. And the day or the season just keeps getting better and better. From bad to good or maybe even from good to great. And instead of living a nightmare, you're living a dream come true. You have those stories? I have those stories. In fact, one of them happened 46 years ago. I was nine years old. I won a contest, and it changed my life. I was in fourth grade, and I was a part of a uh, kids' ministry program at my church called Awana. And there was a contest, and the contest was going to be based on some athletic skills and game time, uh, bringing first-time guests to the Awana club and memorizing Bible verses. You need to know I was a runt, and I had a learning disability, and I was competing against guys that were much older, much smarter, and much more athletic than myself. The winner, the winner would get a one-hour flight in a four-seat Cessna aircraft, something that was beyond my wildest imagination. The youngest of six, we were probably middle class, struggling, and uh, none of us had ever flown on an airplane of my, my siblings. It uh, never occurred to me that I had a chance at winning, and yet there I was in the final weeks, and my name was up on the leaderboard. And on the final week of, my con- of that contest, to my shock and amazement, I was one of the top two, and I was running neck and neck with a young man that I thought like he was like probably a Nobel P- prize winner. He's probably going to MIT. His name was Scott Butler. He was Mr. Awana. He was like the oldest you could be before you aged out. And on the final week, neck and neck, and and just, just that, I could not believe the favor and honor and grace of God on my life. I remember sitting there and people cheering and going crazy, who's going to win? Who's going to win? And that, that sense that, God, you really, really love me. God, you are for me. I can't believe that this is possible. And wouldn't you know it, that next Saturday, it was not Scott Butler in the airplane, but it was little Jimmy John Roden, the youngest in my family, and the first to fly. True story. It, it, when I look back and I look at my story and I say, where did God show up in the stories of my life? 
Where did God show up and tell me who I am? That was one of those, those first and most, most powerful stories of my life. And why do I tell this story this morning? Because my guess is that most of us here, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, maybe you're Christian, maybe you're sold out, maybe you're swinging for the fences trying to love and honor the Lord. Maybe you're on a spiritual journey, you don't know if Jesus is any different than the Easter Bunny, but you're here. Chances are you're not living the dream. Chances are you're having a little bit of a taste of a nightmare, and you're wondering, where is God in this story? And this morning, I want to remind you of the story beneath the story, and the God above the story, and the story of the story, the story that was, the story that is, the story that will come. And that is a story from bad to very, very good. This is the story of the scriptures. In fact, as you read the Bible through this lens, you'll see this theme show up again and again and again and again and again. In fact, it's the big story and it's in parts and pieces all the way along. In fact, just cherry-picking from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 4.19 says this, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. That some people that, that do not choose the paths of the Lord, this is their story. It's a story that goes from it's pretty good to very bad. But wouldn't you know, the verse right before that verse in Proverbs 4.18, it says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day sun. That's the story for God's people. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that's the story of Esther. And one of the reasons why God included this 10-chapter book in the Old Testament. See, the book of Esther contains events that took place in a time where God's chosen people, because of their personal and, and national sins, they are being disciplined. First by the Babylonians and now by the Persians. This was not supposed to happen. See, God, God told them in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 13, that God was going to make them the head and not the tail, that they were going to go up and not down. So long as they obey his commandments. But guess what? They're a lot like us and we're a lot like them. They didn't always obey God's commandments. So now when we read the book of Esther, they have been the tail for over a hundred years. Sure, some have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. King Cyrus, many years before, before Esther, said, hey, all Jews return and rebuild. But they were still a conquered and subdued people. They had not been fully restored. They were the tale. And that's where we open in the book of Esther. The book begins with a king named Ashwaris. History tells us that this is King Xerxes, the son of Darius. And, and it opens where, where Ashwaris is throwing a party for 180 days to show off what the scripture records. Riches, glory, splendor, pomp, and greatness. Followed by seven days of drinking. At the end of the seven days of drinking, he says, bring out my prized possession, my wife. Let her show off her beauty. And she says, hmm, rain check. No thank you. 
And Ashwaris looks to his seven wise men and says, what in the world am I supposed to do now? And they said, you absolutely must divorce her and depose her and banish her. Lest all of our wives start to disregard our authority in their lives. And they thought an edict could actually fix this husband-wife relationship problem. And so he actually takes their advice and he banishes her. Now, four years later, there's a beauty contest and Esther is chosen, but her identity as a Jew is kept a secret. Five years into her being the queen, five years of her keeping her Jewish identity a secret, a new prime minister comes to power, appointed by King Ashwaris. And because Mordecai, and who's Mordecai? This is Esther's cousin who has adopted her as his own daughter. Her parents have died. And so her cousin Mordecai adopts her. And Mordecai, because of who he is, simply cannot and will not bow to Haman, who is a part of a family who are the ancient enemies of the Jews, the Agagites. He will not bow to him. And because he will not bow to him, things for the Jews go from tolerable to terrible. From bad to really, really, really bad. Because Mordecai must be destroyed. In fact, from Haman's perspective, to just take out Mordecai isn't good enough. Haman comes up with a plot how to absolutely wipe out the Jewish race. Things have gone from bad to worse. Sound familiar? Minding your own business, trying to survive, maybe... Minding your own business, trying not to sin, trying to serve the Lord best that you can, and then all hell breaks loose. That story seems to be more common than living the dream, right? And where is God when all hell breaks loose? You see, God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and that's the point. Because most of our life, down here on planet earth, even for followers of Jesus Christ, most of the time, it's difficult to see or to hear what and where God is and what he's saying. He seems to be absent. He seems to be silent. And yet, the teaching of Esther is that even when God seems quiet or silent, that he is very present, just out of sight, perfectly orchestrating the events of history for his glory in our good. And lo and behold, we read in Esther that Haman's plot to murder the Jewish people is discovered. Haman is executed on the gallows that he built for his enemy Mordecai. And Esther inherits his estate and Mordecai is promoted to the most powerful position in the Persian Empire. He is the prime minister over 127 provinces, over virtually tens of millions of people throughout the world. There's still a problem, though. Simply because Haman is dead does not mean that they are out of the woods. See, Persian law is irrevocable. It's irrevocable, and so the Jews throughout the empire, men, women, and babies would still be destroyed 
in a little over eight months. You see, there were tens of thousands more like Haman in the Persian Empire. People that were excited about the day that they were going to get to murder Jews, men, women, and babies, and plunder their houses. They could not stand the Jewish people, and they were scattered all throughout the empire. Haman is dead, but the nightmare is not over. So Esther goes before the king, takes her life in her hands once more, and pleads for her people. And here's where the story starts to turn out like a dream come true. Ashwaris gives Esther and Mordecai full authority to transact kingdom business in his name. And instead of making it merely illegal to murder the Jews and go back to status quo with an empire filled with people secretly plotting to destroy the Jews at another date and time, instead of just repealing the law, God uses this moment to fulfill his plan and bless the Jewish people exponentially. See, while the law remained enabling uh, people to murder the Jews on the 12th, on the 13th day of the 12th month, now it would be legal for the Jewish people to take up arms and defend themselves, their wives, and their babies, and to put to death anyone who could come against them. And this is how it went down. So we're all now into Esther chapter 9. I'm going to read some different portions and talk about what we can learn from this today. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews had hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them, and it keeps getting better. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ashwaris to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. This is mind-blowing. It says here, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So the mayors and the governors, they all worked under Mordecai now. And they're like, oh crud, we do not want to be on the wrong side of this argument. Let's help God's people. And then it says here, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed the 10 sons of Haman, the, enemies of the, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That's very important because you look at this, and I'm not going to go deep into this, and you go, oh my goodness, where's love your enemy? Turn the other cheek. This is a totally different conversation. They are coming out at these, these people to, to murder their babies. And to do so and to stand by passively, you are worse than an unbeliever according to the New Testament. And so they are given the authority and the right to take up arms to, prevent, to defend their people. And in so doing, 
They are wiping out the ancient enemies of Yahweh God himself. It says here in verse 11, that very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Esther, quote, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's province? And now watch the, the honor that he is giving now to his queen Esther. Now what is your wish? It'll should be, it shall be granted to you. This is the fourth time in the book of Esther that he says this. And now he is initiating it. She does not have to risk her life to come to him any longer. He's actually coming to her to give the report and say, what else can I do for you, babe? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews, her and Susa, be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa. And the ten sons of Haman were shishkebobbed. It's a true story. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. And what we discover in this story is these people are so crazy in Susa that even after 500 make an attempt to, to come against the Jewish people and the men stand strong and strike them down, that the next day 300 more want to try it. And Esther says, hey, in Susa, let's just keep the door open one more day. Let's see if anyone else is foolish enough to try to come against the Jewish people. And the king says, that's a good idea. That's a really good idea. I don't want those people in my city either. And so on the next day, 300 more say, this is a great idea. Molotov cocktails and rocks. And the Jews go, no. And they strike down another 300. But note a second time, they laid no hands on the plunder because this is not what it was about. They were not acting out of self-greed. They were doing the work of the Lord here. In verse 16, it says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. And notice for the third time, but they laid no hands on the plunder. These people were doing what was morally justified and morally righteous in protecting their wives and their children and their, and their brothers and sisters. Verse 17 through 24, we see the institutional institution of a holiday called Purim that's based on the lot. That's what the word Pur means. When Haman was rolling the dice to the gods of destiny, looking for the magical date whereby he would call the nations to, to strike down the Jews, it was that very day that God produced this great turn of fate. And God takes this nightmare story and turns it into a dream come true. And it says here in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 17 through 24, it was the day that sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into a holiday. Furthermore, and I quote, days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. It's like our Christmas. It was so joyful and celebratory. And then we've, we got a little bit of, a, of a, a conclusion statement at the end of Esther chapter 9 in verse 25. That, that when Haman's plot was discovered, that the king gave orders in writing that, the, that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. 
the seed of the serpent, a picture of Satan himself getting his head crushed, and that God was using these events to strike down the enemies of his people, but also to give us a picture of our own story, the true story, the real story, the story behind the story, that one day the enemy himself will be completely obliterated and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Now, chapter 10 is super short. It's the conclusion, and i got to read it. It's three verses, okay? And it's a great ending. It says, King Ashwaris imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and his might, and the full account of the high honor Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ashwaris, And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. Why? For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. He becomes a type of messianic figure or foreshadowing. I mean, there's another sermon. We could go six weeks right there. He sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's the Lord's love for us. This is Mordecai. Placed by God, he wanted nothing more than just to mind his own business. And one day he just goes, but I can't do that. I cannot bow to Haman. And it gets him all in trouble. And everyone's probably pretty upset with Mordecai. Things go from bad to very, very, very bad. Only to discover, even in the bad, God is setting things up for a far greater good than we could have ever imagined. Until the top two positions in all of Persia, top three, you got Ashwaris, but he, what does he do? We always see him doing what his right hand and left hand people are telling him to do. Who's on his right hand? Esther. Who's on his left hand? Mordecai. Jews. And God is the one who is bringing about all these things, complete reversal in the entire kingdom, purged of the enemies of God and the enemies of his people, the Jews. See, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble, but the way of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Can I tell you, this story happened. You know that Jesus, we think, Jesus celebrated Purim? John chapter 5, it's the mysterious unnamed feast. It's the only one that could have occurred in, in the space of time that uh, we know Jesus was on earth on the time mentioned in John's timeline. Jesus celebrated Purim, where they commemorated what God did through Esther and Mordecai. This story happened. This story happens. You have your own stories, though few and far between, but where God has just given you a hug, he's, he's winking, he's smiling, he's whispering in your ear, I love you. You are not destined for destruction. I've got something really good. Your life is hard, but I've got something really good for you coming down the road. This story happened. This story happens. This story will happen. There is a a completion. This is a microcosm. It's It's a mini telling of the story, God's plan of the ages. That for those that love God, for those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for those that apprentice their lives after Jesus of Nazareth, 
this is the story that we're living in. Oh, you might be be tanking or torpedoed in the midst of your story, and you go, it's not like that for me. My story's terrible. Guess what? You can't go from there to here or from here to there without going through the middle. You're just in the middle. But the true story, the real story, is this story. Yes, and this is the bottom line of our, of our message today. If you want to fill in the blanks on your, your notes, yes, life is hard and the world confusing. Duh! It's like that for everyone. Life is hard, the world confusing, but take heart. Jesus wins. And his people with him. Do you believe that story? You know, Jesus said this to his disciples. And, and through the telling of this, this account in John's gospel, he is also telling us our story. Again, the story shows up again and again and again throughout the scriptures. John 16, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. What's going to give you peace? That everything works out all the time in my life? No. He says, actually, in the world you will have tribulation. He wanted us to know on the front side, there's going to be some bad, bad, very bad days. Or seasons, or years, or even decades. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus wins. And his people with him. Question, are you of his people? You know what? In in the story of Esther, there's three ways in which we see uh, that we can take heart. Three things that, that Jesus overcoming the world. Three things that are just all over Esther's story. Three things that we all want. Three blessings that we're yearning for. I want to just take a moment to unpack these three and show you how this, this works. That Jesus wins and his people with him. You ready for this? The first is this. We're all looking for honor and favor. We're all looking for honor and favor. In fact, they're so closely related. It's like two sides of the same coin. We're looking for people to recognize whose we are, our value as image bearers. And favor means that everything doesn't have to be hard. That there are times when you just ask and you receive. We're all looking for that. We're looking, at, looking for that from God and from our fellow image bearers. And it's all over the book of Esther. From beginning to end, in fact, in, in chapter 2... From the moment that Esther gets taken away, and she might have even been taken away by force, you say, where's the favor in that? Well, look at the chief eunuch named Haggai. It says here in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 9, that Esther won favor with him. And then it says uh, a few verses later, it's not just with Haggai, the chief eunuch, in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then it keeps getting better because in chapter 5, um, verse 2, it says, um, or actually chapter 2, verse 17, it says the king. So now it's Haggai, everyone, and now the king. It says that the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that the, he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen. Is that favor? Is that honor? Absolutely. And then um, in chapter 5, verse 2, when she has to go in and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm Jewish, and fight for her people. But she knows it's illegal to walk into the presence of the king uninvited. And it says here in in Esther chapter 5 verse 2 that when the king saw 
Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor. Who is doing this for her? Every time she turns around, she's winning favor. Is this because she's so awesome? And if she is, who made her awesome? I mean, where do you want to fight the, the argument? Esther is who God made her to be. Esther, God is the one that is giving her honor and favor every time she turns around. But it's not just for Esther. It's for Mordecai the Jew. Remember in chapter 6, a murder plot that was foiled is rediscovered. And King Hashwaris realizes, I never said thank you. How do I say thank you? And we read in Esther 6 that it's Mordecai, the humble servant, that stands at the king's gate is now being paraded throughout the city in royal robes on a royal horse with a royal crown and it's Haman, his enemy, shouting, thus shall it be done for the one whom the king desires to honor. Honor and favor. And we're only up to chapter 6. Esther chapter 8. It says, Mordecai came before the king, for Esther told him who he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring. Gives it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. The signet ring is the power to transact official business in the name of the king. He is now the prime minister. Esther chapter 8 verse 15. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. And and now these are his own royal robes. First time he was just being paraded through the city in the king's robes. But now it says he had royal robes of blue and white and a great golden crown, and a robe of fine linen and purple. Now these are his own honor and favor. It's not just for Esther and Mordecai. Do you know that it says here in, in chapter 9 or chapter 8? Chapter 8, it says that, that when the, the royal edict gets around the world to the 127 provinces, it says that a whole bunch of Persian people convert or at least claim to be Jewish. Tell me that's not honor. Tell me that's not favor. Hey, I don't know if I like you, but I want to be just like you. I, I, I'm with you. I mean, it says, it says, many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jew for fear the Jews had fallen on them. Back to Mordecai, chapter 9, verse 4. Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout the provinces for he became more and more powerful and on and on and on and on and on that this story is a story of rags to riches. A story that goes from bad to worse, and then very, very, very bad to unbelievably over-the-top amazing. And a story of the tail moving back to the head, and those who are down being lifted up. And you go, how do you know that's our story? Let me just give you a, a couple from the scriptures, and my, yeah, I, could, I was so confused at where to settle on, where are my support texts, because there's so many of these, I, so I cherry pick out of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, as many, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, sounds just like those verses from Proverbs, right? Some are going to go up, some are going to go down, very bad, and then he says in in Daniel 12, 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God's faithful people are going to be honored like the stars of the universe. 
Paul would say this to the church in Rome, Romans 8, 17 through 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. That's talking about honor and favor. And then Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We're looking for honor. We're looking for favor. And guess what? It's coming. It's coming as it did for the Jews, as it came for Esther and Mordecai. It will come for those who believe and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all. The second thing we see here that we all want is justice. Justice. We long for it. You could say, oh no, I'll trust the Lord. That doesn't mean you don't want it. You still want justice. In fact, in Revelation, there is a, a, a picture in Revelation 6.10 where the departed souls of, of murdered Christians are under the throne of God and they're crying out to the Lord for justice. And they say, oh, sovereign Lord, how holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That even the souls of Christians in heaven are hungering for justice. And the beautiful picture of Esther. And you go, oh, I don't know if I like all that killing. Well, killing's a part of justice, okay? And God, God is the one who gives life. He's the one that takes it away. And guess what? That's what the end story is. That those who walk in darkness and foolishness and rebellion against God, they stumble and they trip and they fall. But the righteous shine like the morning and it gets brighter and brighter wrongs are righted and and things that were done that were right are recognized and rewarded this is what happened in esther on the very day when the enemies of the jews hoped to gain mastery over them the reverse occurred the jews gained mastery over those who hated them those who were secretly plotting to destroy them all of a sudden it's it's legal ethical and moral for them to actually wipe them out. And this is just. 800 in Susa, 75,000 in the rest of the empire, there is justice. And you know that you long for it as well. We're just willing to wait for the God who is just. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, Paul said to the, the Christians in Rome that God will render each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. God is watching. He's keeping track. There will be justice. So there's honor and favor and justice. And then finally, guess what? Joy is coming. For those who trust Jesus and apprentice their lives after Jesus, nothing but joy. A robust and resilient happiness for all eternity. We, we read in chapter 4 of Esther, verse 3, that there was mourning and fasting, lamenting and weeping. This is where the story went. They were all slotted for destruction. 
But a few chapters later, the morning fasting, lamenting, and weeping is replaced with light and gladness and joy and honor. It's how the story goes. And then in chapter 9, uh, there's a day of feasting and gladness. And it says that they have relief from their enemies and that their sorrow turns into gladness and their mourning turns into a holiday. And there's feasting and gladness. This story happened. This story is happening. This story will happen. Psalm 30, verse 5, his anger is for a moment, but his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And then my life verse, Psalm 1611, you will show to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, pleasure forevermore. People, joy is on the way. Yes, life is hard in this world, confusing, isn't it? Can you give me a head nod? There's some icky things. Are you stressed out? Are you worried? Are there things in your life you've you got to face this afternoon or tomorrow morning? Uh, are, there, are there things in your, in your family? Maybe you're a child and your parents and you, just, you can't wait to get out of the house. It's so miserable. You're so jammed up there. You're boxed in. Maybe you're a parent and you're freaking out because that's your kid and you didn't try to take them off. And there's tension in the household. There's tension in the relationship. There's anxiety. There's depression. Maybe your husband's a dipstick. Doesn't know how to love you. Just, your marriage sucks. It's hard. It's confusing. Maybe you have some shame over your past, things that you hope nobody ever finds out about, and it haunts you. You want to be free. You know you're told, drag it out in the light, but you're terrified. Maybe you're struggling with a secret sin or a secret addiction. You go, where's the victory in this? I'm struggling. I cry out to Jesus. Where is he? Where's the help? Where's the love? Where's the joy? Maybe you're in midlife and you hate your job. And you're really struggling. You had a successful first half career. And now you're going, and now what is there for me? Because I don't want to keep doing this. And it feels like a dead end. And it's impossible that there are better days ahead. Your life's turning out more like a nightmare than a dream come true. Take heart. Jesus wins. And those who believe and follow win with him. This is the true story. This is the real story. This is the story beneath the story. This is your story if you believe and if you follow. You know, this crazy, murky, upside-down kingdom of man is crashing, crashing and burning. I want to read to you, just in conclusion, a couple scriptures that tell us the end of the story. The story happened. It is happening. It will happen. Hear the words of John in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. We read this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a majestic voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon the great, she has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every clean, unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed adultery or immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, 
Come out from among her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. God is calling his people to be faithful and to come out from amongst the people of darkness. The upside-down kingdom of, of man that we discover is the kingdom of Satan. And it is going down, and he says, come out from amongst them. I don't want you to be punished with them. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The kingdom of Haman, the kingdom of Persia, Babylon, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world is going down. Come out from amongst her and be separate. So you say, I might have to give something up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I tell you the promise, though? This is in the words of C.S. Lewis from his book, The Great Divorce. He says, I believe to be sure that anyone who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, was precisely nothing. Compared to what is in store for us, he says, that's going to be nothing. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there. Beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. So the story for the kingdom of man ends very, 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 very badly. Come out from amongst the kingdom of man. Live differently. Believe and receive and follow hard after the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop making excuses. You don't want to be mixed up in the kingdom of man when the final judgment comes. But can I tell you what God has prepared for those who love him, that believe in him, that trust him, even when the days are really, really hard? Because in Revelation 19, we see the other side of the coin. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And this is the story behind the story. The story beneath the story. The true story. The real story of the ages. This is not the first time that story was told. That there's coming a day for God's faithful. That will be a celebration, a wedding banquet beyond our wildest imagination. A dream Come true. Isaiah 25, one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. It says that in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, 
The Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever any insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, his people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted him. And he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we've trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. The end of the story for God's faithful ends like a dream come true. Are you ready for that? Do you believe? Have you received the gift of salvation? And then are you making it your ambition not just to take the gift and run and live in the upside down kingdom of man, but will you run into the kingdom of light forsaking whatever he calls you to forsake and find you are living in a dream come true. Let me pray. Father, thank you for telling the story over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation, trying to make it clear you, you desperately love us. You're warning us. You're wooing us. You're loving us. And Lord, we're so jammed up down here. We're so stressed out. We're so broken. We're so traumatized. We're so triggered, and yet we so desperately love you and need you. All we need is the evidence for the resurrection, and we've got it. We got more evidence for the person of Jesus in the resurrection than any history book we need. We want to anchor our lives on you, Lord Jesus. We believe we receive, and we want to follow hard after you. You are worthy. And until then, Lord, give us courage. Give us strength. Give us grit to hang tight, to hang in there, and to do it together until we see your shining face. And hear those words, well done. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.